Good morning. I can't think of any place I'd rather be than here with my brothers and sisters this morning. Uh, I, I thought about uh, showing some highlights from the ball game Friday. I thought maybe that wouldn't be really a good way to start the service, but uh, no, so we won't. We won't actually do that, but uh, that's right. All the ORU grads in here and all the ORU fans in here are enjoying the, the uh, afterglow of the win on Friday. So, Also, you know, when we have uh, somebody as significant as one of our former missionaries pass into eternity with the Lord, uh, you know, the, the first thought is, do I need to change the message? And uh, so I prayed about that and thought, no, I want to move forward with what the Lord had given me that I'd been working on. Uh, but, you know, I considered how it might relate, and you'll, you won't really see this till near the end, but uh, we're here together because we have a common bond in Christ, and what we believe about the gospel is foundational to why we can find comfort in the Lord in a season like this when we grieve the loss of somebody we love. And what we believe about the gospel is foundational about why we can have hope in any season of history. And we're going to talk about the season of history that we were in now, that we are in now, and why even what we're looking at today is related to this hope. So that's kind of the way I can relate to what we're talking today uh, to uh, the loss of our dear sister Shirley Norcom. You know, it's part of our human nature to want to be loved and accepted and appreciated. We all want to be seen as or considered as cool. We want to be liked. There's, that's one reason I think Facebook is very popular. We want to be liked. Most of us don't want to be significantly different from others in any meaningful way. Now, we spend a lot of time and money and energy to achieve this goal, and sometimes it has to do with how we look. Like, you may think you're cool, but you will never be a cat riding a dog wearing sunglasses cool. But, of course, I think it goes without saying that few of us will ever be as cool as pearl feathers. <laughs> sometimes it has to do with how we speak. It has to do with how we act around others. This need to be liked starts in our childhood and continues into our adult years. When we're kids, it hurts to be an outcast. I mean, how many of you have had kids that uh, came home from school or came home from the place? Nobody likes me. Nobody wants to be with me. That doesn't change too much in our adult years. We still want to be liked and appreciated. We still want to be seen as cool, but hopefully, by, at least by the time we're adults, we've matured to the point where this desire doesn't rule our hearts and our lives and our thinking. Or worse yet, this need to be like causes us to speak or behave in ways that are mostly so we'll be accepted. But for some, it still does. We want to be accepted. We want to be quote-unquote normal, right? And that desire impacts our words. It impacts our deeds. But we're in a season of history, and we looked at this last time I was in the pulpit, where those of us who are devoted followers of Christ are about as far from cool as you can get. And as we look at the Word of God, we notice something interesting. Not only is this not a new thing for believers, but it's the norm. It's the normal state of our existence as followers of Christ. Last time I was in the pulpit, we looked at the idea of justice and how biblical justice compares to the, today's worldview 
on justice. And we notice that the world's view of justice often reveals a sharp contrast with a biblical worldview of justice. We live in Romans 1. Speaking of the world in his day, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not, not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we see that, don't we? We see that in our world today. This is where we are. Not only does the majority not only practice such things, that long list, and that even wasn't an exhaustive list of the things that we're seeing, but it was, it was uh, pretty sobering when you go through that list, but they give approval to those who practice them. They even celebrate these things. What they are doing is they are celebrating sin. And if we don't celebrate along with them, we're not cool. Now, I want to show you an example from a news story and a video we have coming up here. And so give a listen to this, and then we'll talk about it. And now to our news hour shares. Storybook hours often seek to entertain young children while inspiring a love of reading. But one organization is turning the tables on who's turning the pages. The news hour's Julia Griffin explains. Too bad, said the stink bug. At the Adams Morgan Community Center in Washington, D.C. recently, parents and their tiny tots sat patiently, riveted by a storybook and its reader. He shuffled into Bear's room. Wake up, bear, mumbled Mole. Spring is here. This is Drag Queen Story Hour. It's your classic children's reading program with a twist. The day's literary leader is a larger-than-life drag queen. Everybody wave to each other, make a friend next to you, okay? Author Michelle T. first created Drag Queen Story Hour in San Francisco in 2015. Its goal, to inspire a love of reading while teaching deeper lessons on diversity, self-love, and appreciation of others. Everyone is different, and everyone is not bad, said Scooter, who is a turtle. Different is special. Today, readings take place at libraries, museums, and other cultural centers in more than 30 cities across the country. Some are small affairs, but many, like the one in Washington, D.C., play to full houses. I just love drag queens in general. It's a great opportunity to combine having a little one and enjoying like the performance of drag. I think it's important that we see different people. That mom and dad look different from other people and lots of people love you and have stories for you. And we can learn from everybody. Jonna Purcell is a children's librarian with DC Public Library. It's just really been obvious that there was a need for this in our community. The library partnered with the D.C. chapter of Drag Queen Story Hour to bring the family-friendly events to the nation's capital. We talk a lot in children's literature about stories being both windows and mirrors. So Drag Queen Story Hour can be doing both. There may be a kid here who is seeing themselves reflected in a queen and seeing a possibility for what their lives could be. And then if not, there's a child that's seeing how someone else lives. Let's try this with nails. Ooh, one down. <laughs> Domingo, who goes by J.J. Vera when not in drag, has been performing drag at local D.C. bars and theaters for more than three years. 
She first learned about the organization after other drag queen story hours faced pushback from community groups objecting to LGBTQ themes being presented to children. New York City's Drag Queen Story Hour head, Rachel Amy. A lot of Drag Queen Story Hour chapters in other parts of the country have had serious backlash um, and people protesting their events and disrupting them. And sometimes in some cases, even events have been canceled. The New York City chapter now runs the whole organization's website and social media channels and sets guidelines for how to run Drag Queen Story Hour events. We do provide support and guidance to chapters who are facing that backlash. In the Big Apple, Drag Queen Story Hours have become so popular that the chapter now offers events in Spanish and for children with autism and other special needs. The chapter also hosts drag queen fashion design and makeup workshops for older kids. The point, Amy said, is to create safe spaces for anyone interested in participating. LGBTQ kids often don't see themselves reflected in the broader culture, so it can be life-changing and even life-saving to have that kind of affirming programming in their libraries and schools. And for Domingo, whether the kids understood what a drag queen is wasn't the point. Instead, she was glad everyone seemed to enjoy the show. Drag queens are just here to entertain. We can read. We're intelligent. Like, we... Um, we are harmless and I just hope that, you know, moving forward, it kind of just like stretches those imaginations a little bit more to continue normalizing it and, you know, give people a little bit more like fearlessness to take home with them. Fearlessness with a dash of fun. Goodbye for now until we meet again. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Joel. Okay, so how many of you have ever heard of Drag Queen Story Hour? Well, several of you have, actually. We have a well-informed congregation. Now, Drag Queen Story Hour is a not-so-subtle part of the LGBTQ quest for acceptance. And they would also categorize this as their quest for justice, like we talked about last time. And this is just one example we can mention about the things that our culture wants everyone not to accept, just accept, but to celebrate. Did you catch the tone of that? It was, it was very... Uh, celebratory of the way, what a great thing this is. And if you don't celebrate along with them, you're hateful. You're out of step. You're an alien. You're dangerous. As believers in Christ, our questioning of or objection to such things is out of the norm because increasingly it's not only accepted by the majority, but it's celebrated. And if you think, well, of course, Bill, those things are happening in on the coast, right? Left coast, east coast, in Washington and New York and maybe D.C. or L.A. Could never happen in Oklahoma. You would be wrong. Did you notice the map when they showed it there? Did you notice there was a, a little dot in Oklahoma? You might also think that this is an easy thing for us to target and question. This is really out of the ordinary. But you know what? We're seeing such things more and more in our culture. Did you note a few key phrases in this story? One that we heard a couple times was normalize. They have a goal in doing these things. They want to normalize this. The other was family friendly. This is an example about how our Christian beliefs are increasingly making us exiles. But I show you this video today not to make you outraged, not to make you protest, not to cry foul or complain or lament about how bad things are. I just want all of us to have a clear picture of where our culture is now, and that's just one example that I found. 
I want to consider some responses this morning to these kinds of things that we're seeing more and more in our culture. And we're facing these things every day. We're exiles because we say things like this are not okay. Not according to God's Word. We're exiles in our Romans 1 culture because we really believe what James Thorpe preached just a couple weeks ago. Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. And the Bible has a lot to say about living as exiles because the early church was just that. They were a people in exile. They were aliens. They were sojourners. They were strangers. They were Christians uh, who were characterized by beliefs and practices that were very much out of step with the rest of their society. And if it ever was true, at least in part, a mostly Christian worldview here in America and in most places around the world is no longer the norm. We are, as believers in Christ, as Christians, we are a minority now. And I want to say, you know what? That's okay. That's okay. It wasn't a surprise to the Apostle Paul when he wrote what he just read from Romans chapter 1. And it wasn't a surprise to the Apostle Peter either. Peter's first letter spent much of its content on this reality. And at the very beginning of his epistle, he referred to the believers as exiles, or some translations say resident aliens, or strangers in the world, or foreigners, or temporary residents, depending on the translation that you're looking at. Here's Paul's, uh, I'm sorry, here's Peter's full greeting at the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So we see this word exile here. And this word means stranger in or among a people. A stranger, a sojourner, not simply one who's passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to or among the native people. So we're strangers, we're foreigners, we're sojourners, we're aliens, we're exiles because we are Christians, but we are Christians in a culture would make us feel like exiles. A few verses later in verse 17, still in chapter 1, he writes, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Paul was setting the stage here. and He's saying, okay, this is who we are. So here's how we need to live. In fact, I want to encourage you to read through. It's a short book. Read through 1 Peter. A lot of these themes we see, and we'll read a lot of these passages of Scripture today, but you'll see and you'll say, wow, this is where we are. This is what uh, is going on in our culture. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, he writes, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. That's a politically incorrect word. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify them, or glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter is clear that the believers to whom he's writing are exiles, aliens, strangers. And throughout this letter, this is the environment that he assumes is normal for them. 
Consequently, he gives us God's direction on how to live in the midst of unbelievers. The direction includes warnings like the verse we just read, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. It also includes admonitions as in the verse we read a moment ago. Live such good lives among unbelievers that they would see your good deeds. As we noted earlier, we don't like it when people think we are strange, especially when they think we're weird because of what we believe. But Peter is equipping the believers to expect this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we read in verses 3 and 4, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. So Peter says they think it's strange. The world thinks it's strange. They think we are strange, or they are surprised when believers don't join them in their sin, let alone celebrate along with them. Here's how this might look in our daily lives. So let's bring this down to the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts. Good friends want to include us in their fun, but when we don't go along with their sinful behavior, they might ridicule us for not participating in what we see as their sin. We can be mocked or shunned for not accepting the invitation to a gay wedding or to a bachelor party, or when we refuse to participate in unethical business practices, or we turn down an offer of illegal drugs. What's the harm? What's the harm? but we turn it down, or when we won't cheat on a test, or when we won't mock political leaders. The Bible tells us to pray for our leaders, or we won't have sex with someone that's not our husband or our wife, or we won't go see that movie that we know is inappropriate in some way, or we, or we lie about something seemingly minor. We won't do that, and so they ridicule us, or we won't laugh at foul-mouthed humor, or we won't join in gossip, or we won't uh, miss this, or we won't miss the Sunday soccer game because we want to be in church. These are the kinds of everyday things that make us stand out and look different. But you know what? Think about this. If we're never different than the rest of the world, how will people ever be convinced that the gospel means anything? And how will they respond, as Scripture says, by glorifying God? Now, Peter also points out that because the world thinks believers are strange, they malign or abuse or heap abuse on you or slander you. The word malign here is from the same word from which we get our English word blaspheme. Now, the Greek dictionary defines this as slander, revile, defame, speak irreverently, impiously, disrespectfully of or about. That's what they do. And if you don't see that happening... All you got to do is get out there and read because it's happening. It's happening everywhere. So we might think Peter is saying, don't think it's strange when they think you are strange. That's what he's telling the uh, people that he's writing to and down through the centuries, that's what he's telling us. We see that when we combine verse 4, which we read a moment ago with verse 12 in the same chapter. And he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, Peter's saying, expect this. Expect it. This is normal. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We are aliens from the time we first come to Christ. 
We are strangers in our world. It just seems a little more apparent today for most of us than ever before. Why is this? Why are we so different? Well, because being born again into the kingdom of God has given us new desires. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the way we used to be. It's a former, used to be ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. The result is a disruption of whom we literally run with. We might say hang with, right? And this disruption causes our associates to be surprised. They think it's strange that we're not running with them into the same sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Peter writes of more consequences of Christians becoming culturally alien weirdos. We're totally out of step with what the Gentiles want to do, the unbelievers want to do. And this leads to us being reviled and slandered. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Did you catch that? For to this you were called. It's like we're called to be weird. We're called to be strange. We're called to be different. That you may obtain a blessing. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, he says when, he doesn't say if, When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So because of our standing for what we believe that the Word of God teaches, we can also expect, we can expect to be called evildoers, or we can be accused of doing wrong. We saw that a moment ago in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. This is also a wake-up call for us to expect suffering. We read in uh, 1 Peter 3, beginning with, Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, so that's what we're looking at here, right? We're suffering because of what we believe in Christ. We believe the word of God, so we're suffering. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So realizing these consequences, not only will we be seen as strange, we'll be seen as weird because of what we believe, but it could lead to suffering. This reality might cause us to want to run from this. That would be our normal reaction. Nobody likes to suffer. And indeed, some segments of the church are caving into the cultural pressure to the point where they've already abandoned the authority of Scripture and they've embraced the sins of our culture. At least partly so they can fit in. At least partly so they can stop being seen as weird. 
But Peter calls us to embrace our weirdness rather than run away from it. We are to press into God. We are to press into His Word. We are to press into His authority despite the potential temporal consequences. We see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of Christ. In other words, we must choose to be out of step with a culture that's driven by human passions. We must choose to be in step with the Word of God, with the will of God. This is weirdness as our calling. Before I ever began to prepare for this message, I never thought of weirdness as our calling. But, you know, I think we can see that as part of our calling as believers. To be chosen by us. To be not just chosen, but embraced. Not to say, okay, well, I guess if I got to, to embrace this idea. But Peter doesn't quit there. He doesn't just say, suck it up, be prepared to suffer and wait on God. He writes of how we are to live even in the midst of this. It's a call to be about good deeds for the purpose of silencing, shaming, and converting the pagans. It's about living an evangelistic lifestyle. We read in 1 Peter 2, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 3, 16 having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And again in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, let's note also that we certainly see no guarantee that our good behavior Our good deeds will stop the slander. We also don't see any guarantee that everyone we treat with respect and kindness and gentleness will see Christ in that. And because of that, they'll submit to Him. But the admonitions to this behavior remain. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's that's ultimate harm, okay? Because we already saw that uh, we can expect suffering. So that's ultimate harm. Who's there to harm you? Good deeds aren't just the evidence, or I'm sorry, good deeds aren't just the avoidance of sin or bad behavior. Now that renouncing of sin is a critical element in our response to this cultural moment. And when we do renounce sin in our own lives, it's part of why we're seen as weirdos. But good deeds are proactive. That's something we do, not just something we avoid. Good deeds include our efforts to bless those who revile us. As we read a moment ago, I'll read it again, 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So there's that idea. I mean, when people say nasty things about us, our natural reaction is to say nasty things, right? But, 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 right? Peter says, don't do that. Of course, there are many things we as believers would think of as good, which our culture will call bad, or they might even call it evil. That's why they'll speak of us as evildoers, we see. 
But just because some, even many, may malign or slander our good deeds, God can still use these things in many hearts to draw people to himself. In other words, you know what? These are the right things to do regardless of the results that we see. The results are always up to God anyway. Salvation's his work from beginning to end. We can only be blessed by being part of his plans and purposes and the tools that he uses. Baby boomers like me grew up in a society that at least sometimes included an overlap between Christian morality and cultural expectations. Millennials, in general, desperately want to be hip and cool. But Peter is telling our oldest among us, he's telling the boomers among us, the millennials, the Gen Xers, and all of us who claim the name of Christ to joyfully embrace our lack of coolness, our weirdness. This is not our culture. This is not our culture. This is not our home. And we are not cool. So, with just as much resolve and joy, we must set our faces to be winsome. Not by cowering before the slander or desperately trying to avoid being maligned, but by getting up every morning dreaming of what new good deeds can be done today. What fresh way can I bless my enemies or anyone in need? The Apostle Peter is calling for a special breed. Not the kind of conservative who gives all of his energy to defending his weirdo status, and not the kind of liberal who will embrace any compromise necessary to avoid being a weirdo, but rather a breed that is courageous enough to be joyfully weird and compassionate enough to be zealous for good deeds. Church history reveals that the times of greatest spiritual darkness are also often the times of the greatest spiritual opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine the brightest just because of the contrast. Just because of the contrast. That's why we want to embrace being weird because we look so different from the way the world wants to live. It's a good thing that nominal Christianity, and that means Christians who are kind of Christian in name only, is becoming obsolete. There's no advantage to being identified as a Christian anymore. There used to be. Christians were respected. Not anymore. As the number of nominal Christians becomes smaller, it simultaneously becomes more clear who is a true believer in Christ and who is not. We're weird, so we're countercultural. I read a great book called Evangelism as Exiles. I would highly recommend it. And the author compared his experience where he ministered in a Muslim culture. He was a missionary in a Central Asian nation. He compared that with, his, with the current cultural moment that we're experiencing here in the U.S. And he writes in this book, instead of whining and feeling sorry for ourselves because the culture is becoming unrecognizable, and we do that sometimes, don't we? I've done that. I've done that. Christians should align their vision with that of the most mature first century Christians. If opposition mounts to a place where it can rightly be called persecution, well then we are called to follow the apostles who left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. We need to stop living in fear of what the future holds in our culture. And we do that, but we need to stop. This doesn't come naturally for any of us. We can only rely on God's grace to equip us with this 
heart attitude. Those early believers to whom Peter wrote did have some measure of stability and comfort, just like we still do. And at that point, when he wrote this, their persecution hadn't risen to the level of prison or death. Though in many places it eventually ended up meaning that for many martyrs in the early church, just as it does for many Christians in other parts of the world today. Yet, they experienced reviling and separation from family members, from neighbors, from co-workers, friends, and other parts of that society. It meant maybe jobs were lost. It meant maybe some of those jobs weren't available because of their beliefs. It meant social ostracism. So it is now with some of us. One way we can overcome the fear of the world is knowing that our earthly struggles are but for a moment and don't even compare to what we have to look forward to in Christ. And that's what I mentioned at the outset. And that's what we think of when we think, surely, she's in eternity now. And so her suffering is over. Our suffering will be over. It's just for a moment, brothers and sisters. It doesn't even compare to what we have to look forward to. This is what I referred to when I spoke of our eternal hope at the beginning of this message. This is foundational for any kind of suffering, including the suffering of living as exiles in your own country. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His grace, great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's treated or tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hearing and believing in the promise of our future in Christ is essential to overcoming the threat of shame and disgrace that would sometimes silence our witness for Christ. A lot of times we just don't speak when we need to speak because we're afraid. But looking ahead to what we have should help us in this. Sometimes it's important, let me say, to just keep our mouths shut. And we'll look at that in a minute. But sometimes we must speak the truth of the gospel. About some of the culture war issues, we needn't always speak. But about the gospel, we need to be always prepared to give an answer to be God's witnesses. Now many of you remember Richard Wormbrand, the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs. He spoke from this stage more than once. And he did that seated in a chair because he couldn't stand for long due to the beatings he got on his feet during his imprisonment as a, uh, as a Christian. While we're not facing here in America the kinds of persecution he faced, it's his attitude that I want to highlight with this story I want to tell you. One of his memories from that time in jail is appropriate here. He wrote, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching, 
they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. What an attitude, huh? What an amazing attitude. It was God-given joy in suffering for the privilege of proclaiming the gospel. And it was his eternal hope that fueled his ability to withstand that suffering for the sake of proclaiming the good news. It's that kind of hope that's incomprehensible to communist jailers. It's the kind of inexplicable hope that marked Negro slaves and made them sing. If you've ever heard some of those great Negro spirituals, many written in the time of slavery, that's what they're pointing to. They're pointing to eternal hope. It's a hope that can still be baffling today to doctors, counselors, classmates, or the next door neighbor. And it's exactly the kind of hope we need to have amid our suffering and social exclusion. But when we suffer, if our collective Christian tone is complaint, if we constantly lament our loss of cultural influence or social standing, if we weep and mourn as if Jerusalem has fallen when our chosen political agenda is overlooked, then we expose our true values. Those troubling circumstances have a way of unmasking our highest hopes. Sadly, far too often, they reveal our hopes have actually been in this present age and not in the one to come. That was convicting to me. That's how it is with our ongoing daily witness. If all people ever hear from us is outrage and complaining about our status, they're not likely to listen when we have something really important to say. If all they ever hear from us is panic, they're not inclined to listen when we tell them the best news ever. I don't believe that God wants us to be known as people always ready to give an answer for our protest and our grievance about how we're treated. We're supposed to give an answer for the hope that's within us, the hope of eternity, the hope of eternal life, the hope that only the gospel can bring. But when our hope is unexplainable, when it passes understanding like the peace that God promises those who are in Christ, that's when people open their ears to hear what we have to say. And Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What if God, think about this, ask yourself this question, what if God in his providential plans and purposes for this moment in our human history, has brought about these circumstances in our culture precisely with a specific purpose, to bring about the salvation of his own. What if, as Jim Garrett reminded us last week, this is God's latest chess move? He's moving the pieces around. He's accomplishing his purposes. The early church in the book of Acts grew and thrived with a lot more resistance than we're facing today. Yet we read in Acts chapter 9, Verse 31, in the midst of all this resistance, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. In the midst of all these things, the church multiplied. Isn't that great news? Now, they didn't have the right even to elect godly leaders, they didn't have true freedom of religion. They were like, it's becoming increasingly clear in our culture, they were seen as weird. 
They were exiles. They were strangers. They were different. They weren't committed to keeping people happy so they'd be liked, to have people think they were smart or contemporary or tolerant or progressive or fun or approving. They weren't concerned about pleasing people or gaining their approval. They were about proclaiming the good news, the best news ever. And what happened? That led many, not all, that led many to Christ. But it also at the very same time led many others to hate them and their message, or at the very least, to consider them weird. We needn't be fearful of politicians who don't share our worldview. We needn't be fearful of a Supreme Court decision or corporations with unchecked power. If we do constantly express that fear to a watching world, we can undermine the good news of the gospel. What we're telling them when we do that constantly is that our greatest fear is the loss of money or power or influence or comfort. If that's the case, our fear is no different from theirs. The gospel is already offensive enough. It's already a hard sell. I mean, think about what we're asking people to believe. Virgin birth? God? Coming in the flesh? Crucifixion, resurrection, miracles? Wow, that's a hard sell. That's hard for the modern mind to grasp. We needn't add to that offense or create additional barriers to the gospel. We can, of course, still exercise our freedoms of speech and religion as long as that's an option. We can do that. But we have to pick our battles, folks. We have to be careful of those battles that we do pick. We have to be careful how we fight them. We can't be offended or outraged by everything. Dr. Seuss and the Muppets are not the right battlegrounds for us. Our dominant message can't be constant displeasure or disagreement or we'll lose our audience before we even get to the most important message of all. In other words, let's prioritize here. Let's prioritize our proclamation of the good news over our complaints about our perceived mistreatment of Christians. And I say perceived because sometimes it is that, sometimes it is mistreatment. But let's prioritize the good news. As much as people can be won to Christ through our witness, they can be lost by our words and our behavior. We need not say everything we think about everything. Better to be quiet and respectful than bold and boorish. Sometimes it's appropriate to just shut up. So we have to be discerning because there's times when it's appropriate to speak up. Paul echoed Peter in some of these things and we read this in Romans chapter 12 where he wrote, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I've thought about that verse a lot through the years, and there's a couple things there. As far as it depends on you, which means we have a responsibility, but it also says, it implies at least, that Some people you can't live peaceably with, but don't worry about them. So 
if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peter knew that one of the greatest dangers for exiles in his time, and I think it's a great danger for us as exiles now, is the constant feeling of being other. And most of us have lived our whole lives where we haven't felt that. But I think some of us are starting to feel that more and more in, depending on our circles that we run in. But the truth is, being a stranger is central to our calling as believers in Christ. We don't need to become more like the world to win their approval or affection. We should celebrate our uniqueness, our being different. Let's embrace that. We should, like Daniel in the Old Testament, we should want to have our differences be more visible, not less. To have our good deeds become absolutely unavoidable. If you know so-and-so, this believer in Christ, you can't avoid seeing the good things that they do and the way they behave and the way they treat people with gentleness and respect. Let's be like that. To have our holiness be so evident that people who hate Christians and hate Christianity are forced to come to grips with what they see in us. Brothers and sisters, I'm not cool. And neither are you. But I'm in Christ, and that's better than any likes on Facebook that I could ever get. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us just gathering in the dark without the light of your word to tell us how to behave, to tell us how to live in this world. Father, help us to embrace our alien status, our weirdness, Lord. Help us to embrace that, not in an obnoxious way, not in a way that's proud, but in a way, Heavenly Father, that shines the light of Christ through our words and through our actions. Father, we do ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would equip us to live in this moment of human history, to be your instruments, to be a holy people, to be a gentle people, to be a respectful people, known for doing good deeds, known for uh, not worrying about how we are treated, Father, but looking forward to eternal life and that that would inform, that would be foundational for the way we live in all the things that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.